Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The healing of a man who was born blind. But we're going to see that the religious leaders were just as blind, but just in a different way. And if we were all honest, we would admit that sometimes we can also be blind to certain areas of our lives. For instance... A custom officer observes a truck pulling up to the border. Suspicious, he orders the driver out and then searches the vehicle. He pulls off the panels, bumpers, and tires, but does not find a single scrap of contraband, whereupon, still suspicious but at a loss to know where else to search, he waves the driver through. The next week, the same driver arrives. Again, the official searches, and again, finds nothing illicit. Over the years, the official tries full-body searches and x-rays, anything he can think of, and each week the same man drives up, but no mysterious cargo ever appears, and each time reluctantly, the custom man waves the driver on. Finally, after many years, the officer is about to retire. The same driver pulls up. The custom officer smiles at him and says, I know you're a smuggler. Don't even bother denying it. But I can't figure out what you have been smuggling all of these years. Listen, today is my last day, and I swear to you, I will do you no harm. Won't you please just tell me what you have been smuggling? The driver looks at him with an impish grin and says, Trucks, man. I've been smuggling trucks. (laughs) Look at verse 8 with me. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously had seen that he was blind said, Is not this who sat and begged? Some said, This is he. Others said, He is like him. He said, I am he. Therefore they said to him, How was your eyes opened? He answered and said, A man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and I received sight. So here this poor guy is. He's been blind from birth, and instead of people being happy that he can finally see, They are debating whether or not it was him in the first place. Maybe he was thinking, great, now I can finally see and nobody recognizes me. But the illumination led to a problem of identification. Was this really the blind beggar and who caused him to see? Throughout the rest of chapter 9, a growing conflict takes place around those two questions. The religious leaders did not want to face the fact that Jesus had healed the man or even that the man had truly been healed. Did he fake it? And if he didn't fake it, how could they explain it? That's just like us, though, isn't it? We are so prone to ask how. We want to understand the mechanics of how God works instead of simply trusting the Savior who alone can work in our lives. The disciples asked, why was this man born blind? His neighbors asked, how was his eyes opened? 
But both groups missed the most important question, which wasn't why or how, but who performed the miracle. Verse 12, please. Then they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him who was formerly blind to the Pharisees. Now, it was the Sabbath when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also asked him again how he had received his sight. He said to them, he put clay on my eyes and I washed and now I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. Others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. Try to imagine that scene this morning. The man's community undoubtedly knew him well because his begging for alms had made him a fixture of the community for many years. The Pharisees pitied him for his sin-inflicted malady while the Sadducees wallowed in condescending approval of God's justice. Now, I'm sure that a few people probably showed compassion, and I would imagine that others silenced their jingling coins as they tiptoed by. But suddenly, one day, this same man bounded into the temple, marveling at the splendor of God's house. Remarkably, worshipers noticed a familiar face, yet failed to see the truth of what had occurred. The sad thing about this story is that we see plenty of debate and we hear lots of questions, but where is the excitement? Where is the joy on behalf of this man who had been miraculously healed? Instead of leading him to a celebration, they dragged him to an inquisition. He was made to stand before the Pharisees to answer for his healing as though he had done something wrong. All he tells them is all that he knows, and that is that Jesus put clay on his eyes, he washed it off, and now he can see. But he omitted part of the story. He said Jesus made clay, but failed to say how he did it. Why? Because blind, when Jesus sped on the ground, he didn't see it. In other words, he didn't see exactly how the miracle took place. He just knew that it did. So, too, we often felt the Lord's touch in our lives. Exactly how it happened, though, we can be at a loss to explain. We only know that after walking in darkness from birth, like the blind man, we have received sight. Here a blind man now sees Yet the Pharisees say, wait a minute, that violates statute 2482.6, which forbids making clay on the Sabbath. Now, I'm being a little facetious here, but not very much. You see, the Pharisees have a whole book of laws that they have come up with. In contrast to the two commands that Christ gave us, love God and love your neighbor as yourself, the Pharisees have developed a system of 613 laws consisting of 365 negative commands and 248 positive commands. But by the time Christ came, it has produced a heartless, cold, 
an arrogant brand of righteousness. Let me give you an idea of how crazy this rule keeping has got. One section alone of the Talmud, which is the major compilation of Jewish tradition, has 24 chapters just listing Sabbath laws. One law specified that the basic limit for travel was 3,000 feet from your house, but various exceptions were provided. If you place some food within 3,000 feet of your house, you could go there to eat it, and because the food was considered an extension of the house, you could then go another 3,000 feet beyond the food. If a rope was placed across an adjoining street or alley, the building on the other side as well as the alley between could be considered part of your house. Now, under Sabbath regulations, a Jew could not carry a load heavier than a dried fig. But eating restrictions were among the most detailed and extensive. For instance, you could eat nothing larger than an olive. And even if you tasted half of an olive and found it to be rotten and spit it out, that half was still considered to have been eaten as far as the allowance was concerned. Throwing an object into the air with one hand and catching it with the other was also prohibited. So I guess the juggling was a definite no-no. Nothing could be bought or sold and clothing could not be dyed or washed. No fire could be lit or extinguished, although for a lamp, if it had already been lit, it can be used within certain limits. For that reason, even today, some Orthodox Jews use automatic timers to turn on their lights in their homes well before the Sabbath begins. Otherwise, they might forget to turn them on and have to spend the night in the dark. Baths cannot be taken for fear that some of the water might spill out and wash the floor. And a woman was not to look into a mirror lest she see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. Now, according to those hair-splitting regulations, a Jew cannot even pull off a handful of grain to eat on the Sabbath unless he was starving which, of course, is a difficult thing to determine and will be cause for a considerable difference of opinions. If a person became ill on the Sabbath, only enough treatment could be given to him to keep him alive. So a broken bone, unless life-threatening, couldn't be set until the next day. Treatment determined to make him improve was considered work and therefore was forbidden. Now, if you think about it, to determine just how much food, medicine, or bandaging would be necessary to keep a person alive and no more would in itself be an impossible burden. Among the many other things forbidden on the Sabbath were sowing, plowing, reaping, grinding, baking, threshing, binding sheaves, winnowing, sifting, kneading, separating or weaving two threads, and tying or untying a knot. Now back to our story. The law said Jesus couldn't spit on the ground on the Sabbath. Why? He could not spit on the ground because that would be making clay, and making clay 
was considered to be manual labor. How? They said the spit would roll in the dirt, and that was considered plowing. So in their eyes, Jesus had broken the Sabbath by healing this man. Again, according to rabbinic maxims, it was permissible to try to keep the patient from getting worse. But on the other hand, it was forbidden to do anything to make him better. A doctor cannot treat a toothache, for example. But think about this. They were ready to kill Jesus for breaking the Sabbath, but they were not prepared to let him heal on the Sabbath. Later, they would be ready to have him crucified so long as the execution took place before sundown on Friday evening. Such is the blindness of religion as opposed to those who have a true and robust faith in God where love reigns instead of law. Verse 17, please. They said to the blind man again, what do you say about him? Because he opened your eyes. He said he's a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called the parents of him who had received his sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? In verse 11, the blind man called Jesus a man. But now, just a few minutes old in his knowledge of Christ, he realizes he is more than a man. He is a prophet. And by the way, eventually, all of us must answer the question of who Jesus is. First, you need to know that if you do not face that question now, you must face it later. For the question is inescapable. The very nature of the question makes it inescapable. Your answer must be a yes or a no. A maybe is a no. A delayed answer is a no. Even to fail to answer entirely is a no. So if you have heard it, you must answer it. Well, obviously not believing this man, they now bring in his parents for interrogation. They cast aspersion on them by the way they ask the question. Notice verse 19. Is this your son who you say was born blind? The way the question is framed is meant to intimidate the parents. You say he was born blind, but we have our doubts. Think how stupid that is. I'm surprised the parents didn't say, you're right. You caught us. We've been lying all these years about him being blind so he could be a beggar. We thought that would be a lot cheaper than sending him off to college. Look at verse 20. His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But by what means he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age, ask him, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed that he was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
Do you see how sad this is? This should have been one of the happiest days of their lives as parents. And these religious leaders are going to spoil it for them by threatening to put them out of the synagogue. Now, it was a pretty major thing in those days to be put out of the synagogue. Here in our country, if you don't like a church, there are usually 10 more within a 10-mile radius that you can go to instead. But to be put out of the synagogue was to be excommunicated. But it just wasn't to be excommunicated from religious instruction. To be put out of the synagogue would mean that your family would shun you. You would also lose all your livelihood as most people would no longer do any sort of business with you. Now in Israel, there were declining levels of being snubbed. If you did something bad, there was a list of things in which you would be snubbed for a day where no one would even talk to you. They would cross the street if they saw you approaching. If it was something worse, they would snub you for a week. But if you had committed some evil just underneath stoning, then you would be permanently removed from the synagogue, which basically meant you would have to move to a pagan country to have any kind of a normal life as you would be considered from then on to be a Gentile. To be sure, it was a serious thing to be excommunicated from the synagogue. But it was far more serious to reject the truth and be lost forever. Proverbs 29:25 says, "The fear of man brings a snare." Think about that. The Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus. And his parents were trying to avoid a trap, but all of them were simply ensnaring themselves. Verse 23, so they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered and said, whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, now I see. Well, the Gestapo tactics continue. The religious leaders call the man back and try to convince him that while he should indeed glorify God for the miracle of his sight, he was to know that who he said did it, namely Jesus, was in their opinion a sinner. I like this. The blind man said, you may be able to trip me up intellectually and outmaneuver me logically, but all I know is this. Once I was a miserable, blind, wretched sinner, but now I see. As one commentator notes, the man's eyes are opening wider. He is beginning to see still more clearly, while the eyes of his judges are becoming clouded over with a blinding theological mist what the man is doing is what is called giving his testimony i think his is one of the best ever here's what i mean i don't know if you've ever been to a testimony service but here's the thing sometimes the person either embellishes their sinful past 
or they make their sin sound so attractive, part of you wants the service to end so you can run out and try it. They say things like, man, God saved me from an awful past. I used to drink a quart of whiskey every morning. I would then go to the elementary school and sell heroin to the fifth graders. And by the way, this was all while I was juggling eight different girlfriends at the same time. And then I turned seven years old and things really went downhill. (laughs) Now, is that what the man in our story does? No, his testimony is simple and direct. He is saying, look, I don't know all the theology you do, but I do know one thing for sure. I used to be blind and now I see. And that is a testimony of every believer in this room. Every one of us, like Jonathan said, at one time was blinded by sin, and now we can see. When I told my drinking buddy, Rick Ebhart, that I got saved, he looked at me and said, I give you one month, and you'll be back in the nightclubs with me. Well, that was 33 years ago. Now, I couldn't explain to him the doctrine of justification or anything like that. But what I did say was something to the effect of, I don't know, man. All I know is I don't want to drink anymore. I just want to read the Bible and go to church. In other words, I was blind, but now I see. That's your testimony, too, if you're a Christian. And furthermore, like this man, we can absolutely know that this is true. Christians claim that they know many important things. For example... They know whom they have believed. They know their Redeemer lives. They know they've passed from death unto life. The Bible says we can know these things. Christian apologist Michael Ramsden writes, Faith is not just wishful thinking. This conviction is often expressed most politely in the following form. Michael, I'm so happy that you're a Christian. And I wish I could believe what you believe, but I can't. The author then writes, In my experience, what most people mean by this is, Michael, I am happy that you are happy. There seems to be a joy and completeness in your life that I find attractive. But the reason you are happy is because you are a Christian. In other words, you believe things that are not true or real. So what they're really saying is, Michael, you are actually insane. But the main thing is you are happy and insane, and I'm happy that you're happy. Is that what biblical faith is? Absolutely not. God says, come and let us reason together. We don't check our brains at the door. God invites us to think through the issues of life in Scripture, and if we do that honestly, we will come away believing. Only Scripture possesses that kind of life-changing power. In one of his messages, C.H. Spurgeon tells of a pastor whom he knew who had become converted suddenly in the middle of one of his sermons. The pastor was much like the man who had been born blind. He had a lot of head knowledge. Nevertheless, he wasn't converted. One Sunday, though, as he was preaching, he was taken up with the truth of the gospel. 
He was so taken up with it, in fact, that it affected his normal mode of speaking, and he found himself declaring the truth concerning Christ's death with the utmost of conviction. The congregation even began to notice a change. At last, a Methodist who was in the church shouted out, The preacher is converted. Hallelujah. The pastor stopped preaching and added, I believe you're right. Something wonderful has happened to me. I do believe on Jesus. And all together they stood and sang, Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. That can be you today. Look at verse 26. And they said to him again, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them and said, I told you already. You did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become one of his disciples? Then they reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke to Moses. As for this fellow, we do not even know where he's from. I can imagine the man getting quite impatient at this point. After all, he has been blind his entire life, and there is so much for him to see. He certainly didn't want to spend any longer in a synagogue court looking at angry faces and answering the same question over and over again. They say, wait a minute. Are you sure you were really blind? Were you really, really born blind? Or was it like mostly dead like the prince's bride? They go and talk to his parents and they say, yes, he was born blind. Well, how could this be? This shows how hostile they are to Jesus. They're very upset that Jesus has done this miracle. They're very hostile. And at the very end, Jesus is going to say that they are spiritually blind. What that means is just as the feeding of the 5,000 symbolized his ability to deal with our spiritual hunger, the healing of the man born blind symbolizes Jesus' ability to deal with our spiritual blindness. And by the way, there is no greater blindness than to be blind to your own blindness. If you say, I'm not spiritually blind, I don't know what you're talking about this morning, but I can't look back at a time in which I was spiritually blind and now I can see. I don't know what you're talking about. The only blindness without a remedy is a blindness you're blind to. And it is the deepest kind of spiritual blindness. His reply, of course, didn't go over too well with the religious leaders. His bold rebuke and biting wit had now struck a nerve. Incensed at his insolence, the Pharisees exploded in rage, reviled him and said, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. But he's not done yet. Look at verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Why, this is a marvelous thing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he's opened my eyes. Now we know that God is not here sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Since the world began, it has been unheard of that anyone opened the eyes of one who was born blind. This man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins. And are you teaching us? 
and they cast him out. Isaiah prophesied three times that when the Messiah would come, he would open up blind eyes. Here the blind man, former blind man, now just hours old in his face says, the one who opened my eyes obviously is from God. How else do you explain what happened to me? It's never happened in all of history. You're professing to be authorities, yet you can't even answer this simple question. Well, they have had all of his impertinence that they can stomach. They now accuse him of being born in sin and then deride him for having the nerve to try and teach them anything. It is interesting how the Pharisees often resort to name-calling whenever they're backed into a corner. And by the way, when you're sharing your faith and people start calling you names and they get uptight or they get angry, that might not be a bad thing. Because when you throw a rock into a pack of dogs, the one that yelps the loudest is the one that got hit. So it will be for all Christians who are faithful in their testimony. If you are a Christian, it is not good to be spoken well of by everyone. That may just mean that you're what I call a chameleon Christian, and you change according to whatever group you happen to be in at that time. We have to just accept all are not going to believe. And yet we are to bear a testimony so that by the grace of God, we might win some. Now, I'd far rather someone react in this way than to hear them say, look, you found your way and I found my way and we're all going to end up in heaven together, so let's just hug it out. No. Very often if someone is angry, it can mean that they're actually just convicted. But the result of this former blind man, they kick him out of the church. As we finish up, that brings us to the excommunication itself and to the fact that it often is the inevitable result of a strong testimony. If we fail to confess Christ, if we go along with the world and its values, if we compromise the standards of Christian conduct like Steve was talking about last week, if we do all those things, guess what? The world will welcome us. But if we confess Christ boldly, if we live as a Christian, we are soon going to find ourselves unwelcome in many circles. So it is today. Believe me when I say that it is an honor to be thrown out of some churches. It was an honor when Martin Luther was expelled from the Roman church in the 16th century. It was an honor when Calvin was forced to leave France for Geneva because of his testimony. Thus were many of the Puritans treated. Thus are some treated even today. And it is not tragic. It is an honor, as I have said. In many cases, excommunication has been the brightest moment of some Christians' lives. So how does Jesus react when pharisaical religion throws us out? That's what we'll be looking at next week. And Lord, we all 
at one time have either been blind or are you still even in blindness this morning? Only you know every human heart here. And I pray, Lord, that if anyone within the sound of my voice or even with the podcast later don't know you, that you would draw them by your Holy Spirit, that, uh, that the darkness, Father, would be exposed for what it is, that the blinders that the enemy tries to put upon people's lives, that you would remove it, that we could see the glorious gospel of Christ. For those of, us who do, those of us who do know you, Lord, let us walk in that light. Let us be faithful in our testimony. Like this man, we don't have to have college degrees or all kinds of book learning. Our lives are the greatest testimony there is. We can tell people, all I know is this, man. I used to walk in darkness. Now I walk in light. Give us that boldness. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.